Good evening. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to uh, Cornerstone Bible Church. If you're watching this on the live stream, <coughs> excuse me, I should take your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we are in uh, verse 25 tonight, starting there through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 25. And as he uh, says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place uh, where the, it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law? Why? Because it did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over to the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So again tonight we're returning here on our study in, in the, uh, uh, the book of uh, Romans here in the ninth chapter. We started this a few weeks ago and I told you that I wanted to move this time, I wanted to move through this material kind of quick uh, because it hadn't been too long ago that I'd preached uh, uh, through it and in some uh, detail. I, I'm not moving through it quite as fast as I hoped, but um, I appreciate you many comments coming to you telling me how much you've enjoyed the study and how it's been a help, so uh, I'm thankful for that. <clears throat> We're looking at the overall uh, issue is the tragic unbelief of the nation of Israel. Uh, in, in the context, they've rejected the Messiah, they've re- re- rejected the gospel. Many Jews or many Greeks, many Gentiles at the time, they've come to embrace uh, the good news, and many men and women have responded to the truth uh, and have come to faith in Christ. So the question that has arisen in the background that Paul's addressing is, why is this so? Well, what, what's happened to Israel is kind of the, the behind-the-scenes question. So these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, they're, they're a collective unit, and, and they give the answer to that question. So here in chapter 9, Paul is in the middle of declaring the fact that Israel's unbelief and rejection of the gospel doesn't nullify the gospel, nor does it nullify the promises that God has made to Israel. Now, I think that's especially important in the context of the story for the Gentile believers there in Rome to hear, uh, and, and again to us, who God has made such mar- marvelous uh, promises there at the end of Romans chapter 8, uh, promises where he declares his sovereign goodness over every aspect of uh, the believer's life. He's promised that no one or nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. Jesus our Lord. So with those great promises, you come to chapter 9, and again the question is, what's happened to Israel? Has Israel been able to separate herself from God's love because of its persistent disobedience and her current state of unbelief? That's the question. Because again, in the context of the time, there's so few Jews who believe in the gospel, so few Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So the question is, has God rejected his people, Israel, and has he replaced them with another? And of course, the que- the answer to that question is a overwhelming, resounding no. Jeremiah thirty one verse thirty five. Thus says the Lord, who gives sun for the light by day, and a fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Psalm 89, verse 35, if they, referring to Israel, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with a rod, their iniquities with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness uh, from him, nor deal falsely with my faithfulness. 
My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me, and it shall establish forever. It shall be established forever like the moon, and a witness in the sky is faithful. And then it says, Selah. Now, we don't, usually don't even read that when we read through the Psalms, but I'll just tell you what I think Selah means. Uh, the, the Brits think it means tea time. I, I'm not sure if that's really what it means. But I think it means, what do you think of that? That's kind of what I think. Loose paraphrase. What do you think of that? Selah. Romans 11, verse 1. I say, then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or his, those people who he has loved eternally. God's not rejected Israel. Overwhelmingly, that's what the scripture says. And God's not replaced Israel with the church. God's gospel is true. He's made promises <clears throat> to Israel that still hold, uh, hold fast. And, and those promises will be carried out because God has declared them that they will be carried out. God's word's at stake. So the Gentile believers, uh, I think, in, in the context of Romans and for us also, that's a tremendous reason for us to rejoice because God says his nature and his character back up. God has made magnificent promises to the nation of Israel and that he's going to be faithful to them even though they are sinners. Just like us, we're sinners. Right? We sin against the Lord often. But the truth is, God is faithful. And here's probably the thing that I think you take from that <clears throat> reality is the unfaithfulness of men will never change or alter or cancel the faithfulness of God. That's the issue that's at stake. The unfaithfulness of men will never change, alter, or cancel the faithfulness of God. So, again, as we've started to work our way through this text, uh, uh, um, Paul has expressed his sorrow over uh, Israel's rejection of the gospel. That's the first five verses here in uh, chapter 9. Then he explains that Israel's rejection of the gospel is really consistent with the promises of God, with uh, God. that's verses 6 through uh, uh, six through 13. You might remember he draws on those two uh, uh, stories from history dealing with Isaac and Ishmael and then with Jacob and Esau. And, and he shows, Paul shows, that, that God's divine dealing with these men is consistent with his promises and it's consistent with his elective purposes. And Paul's basic response is that God never elected every, each and every member of the nation of Israel to salvation no more than he has elected each and every Gentile to salvation. Those whom God elects to save are not just from the physical lineage of Abraham, but they're the, the children of the promise. There's those whom God has sovereignly chosen from that line to be members of his family. And God chooses according who he chooses. God chooses in order that his purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's verse 11 of chapter 9. And then as we continued further into study, we saw that Israel's unbelief was consistent with God's person. That was verses 14 through 18. And Paul anticipated that question that was going to arise uh, regarding the justice of God. That's verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. And, and again, Paul declares God's absolute justice in all he does and all of his dealings with men. Listen, God never condemns the innocent. God never condemns the innocent. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. I don't, God never condemns the innocent. Why is that? Because, a man, because among men there's no one who's innocent. There's no one who's innocent. There's none who, none, no one who's righteous, no, not even one. How many have sinned? All. All have sinned. How many have fallen short? All. All have sinned, all fall short of God's glory. Justice for men from a holy God, giving us what we would deserve, would be immediate eternal condemnation. But God, out of his tremendous love for mankind, has found a way through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be merciful to men and at the same time not violate his holiness nor violate his justice. And as the sovereign of the universe, it's completely within the prerogative of God to have mercy upon whom he has mercy and to have compassion on whom he has compassion. That's uh, verse 15. You might remember that little interchange between Pharaoh and Moses. And, and God's under ob obligation to show no man any mercy. He, he, he is under obligation to no man to be merciful, but God is merciful. And as the perfect holy God, he has no responsibility for man's lost, rebellious condition. The responsibility for that condition is man's. Men bear that responsibility. Men bear that guilt themselves. 
God is sovereign. He's the, the, uh, the potter in that analogy that we worked our way through, and the potter has it right over the clay. The clay, meaning representing all of mankind, is the same kind of clay. It's all corrupt. All have sinned. All fall short. It's all corrupt. It's all in sin. And again, the clay representing mankind. And as the sovereign, he has the right to do with the clay what he wants to do. He can make some vessels for honor, some vessels for dishonor. He has the right to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known as he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, again, who by their own love of sin and by their rejection of mercy have prepared themselves for destruction. And we went through all of that last time. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. And the sovereign, it's well within his right, as the sovereignty, as, as the sovereign, God himself, it's well within his rights to take of that mass of corrupt humanity and make for himself vessels of honorable use. Uh, that was verse 23. He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called not from among the Jews only, but from among the Gentiles. So again, overall, the, the issue is God's word has not failed. His promises are true. <clears throat> According to the sovereign grace of, of God, he saves who he decides to save in order that his great name might be proclaimed uh, among the nations, among the whole earth. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of, of mercy and, and, and great grace. So again, what's going on with Israel? Well, the issue with Israel and their unbelief is it's consistent with what God's word has already stated. It's consistent with the promises of God. It's consistent with his person to, again, show mercy to whom he shows mercy. And the third point that we come to tonight as we enter into verse 25 here is that the rejection of Israel, of the the gospel, and unbelief of Israel is completely, listen, it's completely consistent with God's divine revelation. Israel's current rejection of the gospel, at the time Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, is completely consistent with what God said was going to happen with what God predicted would occur through the prophets. So when you start in verse 25, and you go verse 25 through 24, Paul's going to give four examples of Old Testament predictions regarding Israel's unbelief, two each from the prophets Hosea and then uh, from from Isaiah. From Hosea and then prophet Isaiah, who are contemporaries of each other. So again, why, why is this whole issue important? Because if God had made promises to the nation of Israel and promised in advance that each and every individual Jew would be saved, and then later his promises failed and each and every Jew was not saved, then there would be a concern over God not being able to keep his word, or God failing to keep his word. Then there would be a concern that would carry over to God's eternal plans and purposes for them and God's eternal plans and purpose for time. And if God can't keep his promise to the nation of Israel to carry out his plan for Israel, then who are we as Gentile believers to think that God can carry out his plans and his purposes for us? That's kind of the, one of the major issues behind the scene. Who are we to think that God is going to be faithful to keep his word for us if he's not able to keep his word for Israel? So again, the character of God, the nature of God's at stake. There's a challenge to that. Can he keep his word? Can he work out his plan? And again, the whole issue is this whole uh, Israel unbelief is not that God has changed people. The whole issue with the nation of Israel and their unbelief is exactly what God said was going to happen. That's the issue. And we can trust God. His, his word is true. His character is trustworthy. So again, Israel's unbelief is consistent with God's divine plan to show mercy whom he shows mercy. And Israel's unbelief is consistent with the divine revelation that has been given in the Old Testament through the prophets. So what Paul does in verse 25, he begins by paraphrasing the prophet Hosea. Verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who is not my beloved my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they should be called the sons of the living God. Now, these verses are a little bit controversial in the sense the controversy surrounds exactly who is Hosea referring to. And, and probably the, the greater question is whom do these verses refer to in the context of, of the Romans 9 passage? Now, when I talked through this previously, again, not too long ago, I spent quite a bit of time, and we actually worked through the issue, and I actually went back and spent quite a bit of time working our way through the book of Hosea in this study, and I've actually taught through the book of Hosea. So you can go back and, and listen to that if you want to get a deeper context. But in this kind of quick flyover here, as I'm trying to make my way through 9, 10, and 11 to get to chapter 12, um, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go real in-depth. So you can go back and listen to that. I think the last time I preached through Romans was around 2019 or something like that. You can listen to that if you want a a greater in-depth. 
But again, understanding the uh, uh, these verses, again, in the context uh, of this Roman 9 passage is important. Understanding uh, uh, to whom these verses refer out, out of Isaiah. Because I think if you come to, to a wrong understanding, if you miss the understanding or don't deal with the text properly, you're going to miss completely what he's saying here. You're going to miss completely the proper interpretation. And to cut right to the issue, in the context of the book of Hosea, when he talks about my people, <clears throat> listen, he's talking about Israel. In Hosea, when Hosea is talking about my people, he's talking about Israel. And to come up with any other kind of interpretation or any other uh, uh, idea in that context of Hosea is to make an error of reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament. Any other idea that it's Israel would not be consistent with an understanding that somebody at the time would pick up the book of Hosea and read and understand exactly what he's talking about, my people. And, and that's to do an injustice to the Scripture. Now, hopefully, you understand at least the basic outline of the book of Hosea. I'll give it to you real quickly. You know that Hosea was a prophet of, of God in the mid-8th century, and God told him to marry a woman named Gomer. And, and Gomer uh, proves herself to be a terribly unfaithful uh, wife to her husband, Hosea. Uh, Gomer is a wife of harlotry. Uh, that's the kindest word I could come up with. All right? Uh, she, she's a, she's a, a woman of, of, of harlotry, and she has children of harlotry. She has children that don't belong to her and Hosea. And in the context of the story, God uses Gomer's lack of faithfulness to her husband, Hosea, to provide a vivid illustration of how Israel, God's people, have been unfaithful to him. Now, now the story is really not about Gomer and her adulterous affair, but really it's about God who remains faithful to his people and God who loves them in spite of their multiple uh, infidelities and harlotries. So again, Gomer's unfaithful. She commits acts of uh, multiple acts of harlotry against her husband, Hosea, and, and she has uh, three children. And God tells Hosea, you're naming these uh, children, and you're going to give them some very unusual and some very symbolic uh, names. The first one is Jezreel. And the name Jezreel means scattered or thrown to the wind. Just like Israel is going to be scattered amongst the Gentile nations because of their sin against God. Uh, of the second child, God says, you're going to name it Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved or not pitied. Just again, like when God scatters his rebellious people, Israel, amongst the nations, and he'll show them no love or no pity. And, and the third child is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Again, because of Israel's sin and rebellion against God, because of her unfaithfulness to God's will, there's going to come a day when God is going to scatter the nation of Israel amongst the nations, a time where they'll not be loved or pitied, and a time where they'll be forsaken of God and not be his people. Now, you can just imagine at the after, at the, the party on the weekend for work, I'd like you to meet my wife, who's a harlot, and I wanted to meet you, have you meet my three kids, right? Uh, scattered, uh, um, not loved uh, or pitied, and not my people. I don't know how that works at the party. Uh, he probably didn't go to many, right? It's hard to in introduce your family when they're so dysfunctional. Now, it's at this very point in the story where things aren't looking for really good for the nation of Israel after I've given all the names and told you that, that uh, Gomer's not a very nice lady. And, and again, if these names represent God's dealing with the nation of Israel in the future, it's this very point that many people come in and say, well, you know what? God's rejected his people, the nation of Israel. He's either rejected them and or he has replaced them or superseded them with the church. That's what many well-known commentators uh, would come to. That's what the uh, interpretation that they would hold to. But God says to the prophet Jeremiah, if this fixed order, again, the sun by day and the moon by night departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Anybody go outside today? The blue thing is the sky. It's okay. It happens every once in a while, even in Ohio. The big glowing thing is the sun. Do you see the sun today? The moon at night? There's a fixed order that's still in place. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. 
God says, again, Psalm 89, 31, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I'll visit their transgressions with a rod and their iniquities with stripes. But, verse 33, I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely with my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate nor will I alter my utterance of my lips. Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and a witness in the sky is faithful. Selah. Man says, God says. Man says, God says. Now it is true that, that, that God punished and scattered the, the people of Israel. It's true that they were not loved. It's true that they were not pitied. But that was only for a time. It's a time of chastening, a time of extreme hardship, a time of captivity. And that time of hardship, that time of captivity, is to encourage them to repentance, to come back. In fact, uh, God goes on in chapter 2 of Hosea and specifically promises that he will not permanently forsake his people, uh, Israel. The, the spiritually rebellious, adulterous nation. God says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 13, And I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, forgot me declares the Lord. But then he says, after that punishment, time of punishment, there's a promise of respiration. Verse 14, therefore, I will allure her. I'll bring her back into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. I will give her vineyards and there shall be in the valley of Achor, a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. What was the, what was the, what was the Israel singing when they came up from the land of Egypt? I don't know if you remember. It's probably not on the top 50 songs, but it should be. It's out of Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. His horse and the horse and rider has been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength in this song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God. I will extol him. Verse 11 says, Who's like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? That was the song the nation of Israel sang as they came out of captivity in Egypt. And that's the song that they're going to again sing, is what, what God says through, through the prophet Hosea. Punishment, yes, for sin, punishment for rebellion, a time of chastening, but days of hope are coming when God will allure or speak kindly to her and she will sing as in the day when she came up to the land of Egypt. Uh, Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 says, In that day, uh, declares the Lord, you'll call me Ishi, which just means my husband. It's a term of uh, affection. You'll no longer call me Baali, which just means master. So he's saying, look, there's going to be a time coming where there's going to be a change of relationship between you and me. Not from just a uh, an external one, but it's going to be kind of a heart change. It's going to become more intimate uh, re- reconciliation. Verse 17, for I'll remove the names of the balls from her mouth and so that they will be mentioned by her, their names no more. In that day I'll also make a covenant with them and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground and that will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety and betroth them to me, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Okay, and, and he repeats that three times that, that word betrothed because what he's trying to do is he's trying to show that there is an intensity in, in the love that God has in his restoration of the nation of Israel. It, it really is a, a wonderful display of God's enduring love. That in spite of re- Israel's, Israel's rebellion, in, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, there's going to be a time of reconciliation. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he has loved beforehand. Again, Romans uh, 11, verses 1 and 2. That's the story. Here's the picture. So Hosea marries Gomer, and she's a harlot. And her harlotries went so far that she left him, and he had to buy her back as a slave, naked, uh, full of shame on a, a slave block in an open market. Because Hosea loved his wife in spite of her unfaithfulness. And again, the analogy, the picture is God loves his people Israel in spite of her unfaithfulness. And one day there's coming a day of redemption, a a day of buying back. When God's unfailing love for his people is going to be displayed. That's the whole purpose of the book of Hosea. That's the picture. 
And again, Hosea's love for Gomer is a living analogy and really is a wonderful story of God's unending love for his people, Israel. Again, which one day there will ultimately be no rival. And again, that day hasn't come to fruition. That day is coming closer. I don't have time to go into it tonight, but as I was just reading that text again, it's going to come a time when he's going to abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land and make them lie down in safety. Guess what? That hasn't happened yet. nation of Israel is in constant turmoil always. If God says he's going to do something, then listen, he either has to do it or he's a liar. He either has to follow through with his promises or he can't trust his promises. Again, that's the, that's the issue behind the story. That, what happened to Israel? Well, maybe God doesn't keep his word. No, may it never be what Paul says a number of times, right? And, and the greatest negation in the Greek, it says, no, 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 no. God is faithful. He's going to carry out exactly what he says all to the very nth degree. There's a coming time of restoration, reconciliation. There's a time of peace for the nation of Israel. Hosea, in the context of the story, lived to see the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians in 722, 12 years before he actually wrote the book of Hosea. And God used the nation of Assyria, the Assyrians as a nation as a rod of his anger towards uh, the rebellious people, and, and God scattered them. They were unloved, forsaken, just like he said. In 586 B.C., Judah, the southern kingdom, meets a similar fate but by the Babylonians. And they too, the, the Judah was scattered, not pity, rejected. At the time that Paul's writing the book of Romans, somewhere between 57, 58, 60 A.D., uh, the nation of Israel again has rejected her God. They, they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus, God's own son. And because of that rejection, in just a few short years, 70 A.D., Jerusalem is going to be totally destroyed. The Jews are going to be forced to scatter to all the nations. And again, whatever little remnant uh, remained in 132 AD, the rest of them were forcefully expelled by Rome. And since that day, historically, throughout history, we've seen that the Jews have faced terrible persecution. They, They remained scattered, many of them, until 1948, when the modern state of Israel was formed, and recognized to some extent by the rest of the world, and God began an ingathering of his people, a regathering. But they still remain as a people scattered. They are without their king, and they are without access to God because they've rejected Christ. And until they repent and come to the Messiah, they're going to remain objects of God's chastisement. They're going to remain yet not God's people in the fullest sense that they will in the future when they come back in repentance. So let's look here at the, the, the Romans 9 passage, and let's ask the question, whom is Hosea referring to? Verse 25, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who are not my beloved, beloved. Now in the context of Hosea, Hosea is speaking to the nation of Israel. And the second question in the context of this Romans 9 passage is who is Paul referring to as he's referencing Hosea? And I think we need to be very careful here because in the context of the Romans 9 passage, Paul is using Hosea to speak to the issue of the nation of Israel. I will call those who are not my beloved, my beloved, or who are not my people, my people, my people, and who are not my beloved, beloved. Again, it speaks to the nation of Israel, first and foremost. Not the church, not Gentile believers. Gentiles are not the issue in Hosea. Israel is. I pause for a moment. You've heard people preach on uh, Goliath, uh, David and Goliath, and um, uh, the the sling, the stones, and and then you hear people say, well, you know, uh, uh, the Goliath, there's the the giant problems in your life, etc. and so forth. Right? Have you heard that kind of analogy? Yes? No? Yes? Let me tell you what. That is such a poor interpretation. I can't even tell you how bad that is. Guess what? In the issue of David and Goliath, you're not there. You're not there. It's not about you. It's about David and Goliath. And it's not even really about David and Goliath. It's actually about the uh, integrity of God. It's about God's faithfulness, God 
God's person being challenged. Who is this Philist, uncircumcised Philistine who is blaspheming my God? I will chop his head off before the end of the day. The issue really is God. And when you go to Hosea, you go to the book of Romans, when you talk about Israel, guess what? You're not there. The church isn't there. Israel is there in the context of the story. That's what he's talking about. Now, I got it. By way of analogy, there are certainly uh, analogous truths that are true of the church. But I think the Bible very clearly teaches there's a distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. They're two different entities. And again, drawing from the same passage in Hosea, referring to the same gracious, loving, merciful actions of God towards the nation of Israel, the Holy Spirit does say through Peter, in the pen of Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 10, about the church, you were once not my people, but now you're the people of God. You once you not receive mercy, now you receive mercy. That's true. Those things are true of the church. Those things are true of those who have been made objects of God's divine mercy, especially the Gentiles. But that's not the point of Romans 9. That's not the point that, that, that uh, Paul is trying to make here in Romans 9. Paul's still trying to address the issue of Israel and, and, the, and the unbelief of the nation of Israel. Why is it that the mass of Israel is missing from God's elect people at the time? That's what he's trying to answer. And again, Paul's attempting to show from history that God has elective purposes, that his sovereign distinguishing grace is what is at stake here, is what's happening with his dealing with the nation of Israel. That's true that they've rejected God. It's true that, that God has rejected them in the sense that he's scattered them and sent them off into captivity. But their rejection is not going to be a forever rejection. Verse 25, as he says also to Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and those who are not my beloved, beloved. Yes, the gospel is good news for Gentiles. We got that. God calls Gentiles. We got that. But he also calls from the nation of Israel. He also calls people from the nation of Israel. And those whom he calls from the nation of Israel, they're going to respond. And those whom he calls are going to be saved. He says, basically, I will uh, effectually call those who are not my people, my people, and who are, who are not my beloved, beloved. Now, there's an application to the Gentiles. I got that. But the application of the context of the story is about the Jews. He's saying there's a coming day of reconciliation, a coming day of restoration, where God will effectually call a mass of ethnic Israel in the future to himself. Again, I've referenced it several times, but Romans 11, God has not rejected his people, people has he? God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And when you go through that uh, uh, Romans 11 passage, it is just so rich in understanding that truth. He says, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failures be riches for the Gentiles, listen, how much more will their fulfillment be? If their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed about the mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. He's talking to Gentile believers in Rome that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written that a deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is thy covenant with them. When I take away their sins from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also have now been disobedient in order that because of mercy shown to you, they may also be now shown mercy. For God shall shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Again, God has a promise and he's going to keep it for a reconciliation, a restoration of the nation of Israel. That's the whole point of Paul using Hosea. It's a masterful look at the story, and it's a masterful use of an illustration that speaks of the tender mercy, the compassion of God that he has for his beloved people Israel. And again, what more could extol, what more could lift up or magnify the love of God than his elected mercy being put on display about a story of a man who wins back his adulterous wife? And in the context of the book of Hosea, he does that. Hosea wins her back. He allures her. He speaks kindly to her. He brings her to the point where, where songs of deliverance and grace now fill her lips. He has a, a, a love for his unfaithful, harlotrous, adulterous wife. It's a picture of God's love for the nation of Israel whom he will not reject. 
In fact, we won't go there, but when you go back to the context of Hosea chapter 2, he changes all those kids' names from something negative to something positive. He says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 21, it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord, I'll respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the new oil and they will respond to Jezreel and I will sow for for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on whom I would not obtain compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they will say you are my God. So again, no longer is Jezreel's name going to be scattered. It's going to be now planted because that's what God's going to do. I'm going to sow sow for her myself in the land, he says in Hosea chapter 2. It's going to be changed, again, from negatives to positive. God's going to have pity. Who he didn't have pity on, he's going to have pity. Who he didn't have compassion on, he's now going to have compassion. Those who weren't loved are now going to be loved. They are going to be my people. To those who are not my people, you're my people. Thus says the, the Lord God. So again, Hosea's love for his adulterous wife, uh, uh, um, uh, Gomer, is a picture of God's love for his people, whom he won't reject. Again, that's the point of the story. That's the point of at least bringing the illustration forward. Now the whole point of the story, if you want to back up just a, a level, really is God. God's on display. God's grace, God's tender mercy, God's compassion. God's electing love and winning back, again, his adulterous wife, Israel. Verse 25 again, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and who, her who are not my beloved, beloved. And now he goes on again and he speaks almost verbatim in verse 26, the, the prophet's words. It comes out of Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Verse 26, and he says, And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. It shall be said in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people. Where is that? Well, everywhere. Right? Everywhere that God scattered the nation of Israel because of the rebellion against him. Everywhere that they've been called, you're not my people. One day they're going to be called again, sons of the living God. Redemption of God's people is going to occur. Now, Israel, again, is the issue. Romans 9, 10, and 11. One writer aptly says it like this. He says, Paul's emphasis here, really in verse 26 in this passage is not so much Israel's ultimate restoration to God, but her present alienation from God. And as has already been noted, Paul's primary point is the unbelief of Israel that caused her alienation and scattering is not inconsistent with God's sovereign plans for his people. On the contrary, historically, in regard to the time of Messiah, God foresaw and predicted Jewish rejection and its consequences long before it happened. Israel's unbelief hasn't caught God off guard whatsoever. He hasn't rejected his people in total because they rejected him. He already said this is exactly what's going to happen from the prophetic viewpoint forward. So again, Israel hasn't, in their unbelief, hasn't caught God off guard. He protected it with him. He, he knew that Israel as a people were, were unfaithful people, but he predicted in his love that he would love them, and that love for him, that, that love that he has for them is an everlasting love, and, and their present alienation is going to be a temporary issue. It's not inconsistent with his word, nor his eternal elective plans and purposes for them. And I think if we do, as so many often do in great error, if we exchange the church for Israel here, we miss the whole point of the story. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The church hasn't superseded Israel. Israel is Israel. church began at Pentecost in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. If you get this all convoluted, you miss the grandeur of the story. You miss the splendor of the story, the the impressiveness of the story. You you miss the excellence of the mercy and the compassion, the greatness of God and his love for a rebellious people, this people, the nation of Israel. Again, think back into the story. How easy would it have been for Hosea to get rid of Gomer and just get another stinking wife? Right? Right? That's what we do in our day. Get rid of her. And how very easy would it have been for God just to cast off adulterous Israel and get himself another wife, just replace her. But neither one did that. Hosea chose to love his wife and God chose to love Israel. And because God is choosing to love Israel, in spite of all of her frailties, 
What he's doing to us as the church is declaring to us the great love that he has for us. His enduring, unending love for us also. Again, you've got to, you've got to put yourself in the context of the book of Romans. The gospels for the Jews and for the Greeks also, right? But first for the Jews. Why are the Jews not believing? We read, and a lot of commentators read back into, well, it's simple. God just replaced them. Jose says, no, that's not true. I loved them. They weren't worthy, but I loved them anyway. And because God has an unfailing love for the nation of Israel, guess what? As Gentile believers coming in, I mean, pretty much a loose paraphrase of chapter 11 is don't be so big in your britches, Gentile believers. Loose paraphrase. Because you don't understand who God is. It's not about you. It's about Him. Again, the, when the church started, it was Jewish. And now, there's, now the, the Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And now there's an influx of Gentile believers and more and more Gentile believers. How, how do we deal with that? What does that look like? Well, obviously God's replaced them. No. It's not what the Bible says. I've read it to you a couple of times. Jeremiah in the book of, uh, of Psalm 89. So if God has an enduring love for the nation of Israel, guess what? God has an enduring love for us, Gentile believers, coming into this fellowship of God, this thing called the church, even if we fail him. Even if we are adulterous, he's not going to cast us off. He's not going to reject us. That's important because, again, let me think, 6, 7, 8, oh yes, chapter 8 comes before chapter 9. So at the end of chapter 8, he says, what shall separate us from the, or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things that come, powers, heights, depth, or any other created thing, right? And the answer is nothing, no will. No one will, no one, no thing will. Right? So how about our own human weakness? How about our own time of unfaithfulness to God? And again, the answer is absolutely not. Not because we deserve God's love, not because we've earned God's love, but because God is the God of unconditional love and He keeps His word. So if He keeps His word to the nation of Israel, He's going to keep His word to us. Us as Gentile believers, we can be encouraged by that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, Again, well, you just look at the love that God has for the nation of Israel and you say that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Right? So again, for us in the church, Gentile believers coming in, when you get it straight, you just come with a greater understanding of the magnanimity of the story, and you come with a greater encouragement that God keeps His word, and God's love is unfailing, period. No matter what we do. Now, Paul's going to bring a second quote here. He's going to uh, prophet, or second Old Testament prophet Isaiah out of verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the uh, sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. Kradzo cries out. And really it means he's crying out with great emotion, great pain, agony. Uh, the prophet Isaiah's heart is really torn, is what we're learning here. His heart, his heart is torn with sadness because uh, there's such a large number of, the, of his brethren, the nation of Israel, who are going to reject the truth. They're going to reject God's way of salvation. The sands of the sea that are uncountable. The greater number is the idea. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, greater number, sadly only a remnant, a small number is going to be saved. So again, Isaiah, who prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah for about 48 years, like Hosea, he received from the Lord a promise of coming judgment for the people of Judah. And just like in the northern kingdom that was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722, God's people in the southern kingdom, Judah, they meet that similar fate in eight, uh, 586 B.C. when the Babylonians uh, conquered them and they were scattered. And again, in both times of captivity, God's people are scattered. They're not pitied. They're not loved. They're rejected temporarily because of their sin, because of their rebellion. Verse 28, Paul says, For the Lord will execute His word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. So again, he's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 10, and he's saying, again, basically Isaiah is saying, look, God's going to use the nations of men to judge his people in unbelief. And again, God has used the nations, right? God has brought judgment upon the nation of Israel for the rebellion against God, and for a time they've been cut off from being his special people. I mean, again, for the last 2,000 years since the rejection of Christ, they've been scattered, rejected, punished. And their punishment has grown even greater in the context of our days. I mean, uh, again, we've seen even in the past century, right, with uh, the, the offenses of uh, 
uh, uh, Nazi Germany and Hitler and the persecution, the relentless persecution of the Jews. Countless, endless troubles, persecutions always for the nation of Israel. Every day you hear it on on the news. More bombings, more murders. But God has promised a day of reconciliation, a day of restoration. And God's promised that a remnant's going to be saved out of that group. Because God is a God of who he says he is. He's a God of hope, a God of blessing, a God of promise. A God who promises to bring judgment, yes, but again, a God of unending love for the nation of Israel. And what Paul does next in verse 29 is he's going to bring another Old Testament uh, quotation to the table, and so to speak, in order to kind of press the truth home even further. That again, Israel's current unbelief is consistent with God's plan for his people. And it's consistent with what God predicted would happen again through the prophets. Verse 29, just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left uh, posterity, we would have become a Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So again, by grace alone, there's going to be a remnant who's going to be saved because of God's mercy. The Lord of the Sabbath, uh, or Sabbath, has chosen to act. Sabbath is just a, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that means armies. It's often used with kurios, the Lord of hosts, right, is basically the idea. And, and again, Sabbath pertains to the one who has overwhelming power. He's the Almighty, the, the all-powerful one, one who's powerful overall. So the Almighty, the All-Powerful One, has decided to act in unconditional electing love for His own purpose to display the glory of His grace. And He has decided that He's going to act to save a remnant out of the people of the nation of Israel for His use in the future. Now, if God had not chosen to act in mercy and kindness, then all would have been utterly lost. Verse 29, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, a remnant, a seed, uh, we would have become a Sodom. We would have been resembled Gomorrah. Well, you might remember the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They were suddenly and divinely, uh, utterly destroyed, totally annihilated for their wickedness and their rebellion against God. Again, that verse 28 says, The Lord will execute His word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly in Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Abraham, and then Israel and Judah in the times of Hosea and uh, Isaiah with the nations coming against them. And then again, in the context of the story, the near context of the story, just a few years after uh, uh, the writing of the book of uh, Romans in 70 AD, uh, Israel is going to be uh, utterly destroyed. Jerusalem raised. R-E-Z-E-D. And it's only because of God, and it's only because of his character, because of his mercy, because he's a saving God, that Israel one one day be reunited to her king. They rejected him. They've killed many of God's prophets. They've even killed the Messiah. But God is going to be merciful to them in their rebellion, in their spiritual adulteries, because one day he's promised he's going to call his people back to himself. So again, in the context of the story, if the gospel is good news, and it is, why have many uh, uh, men rejected it, many of the Jews rejected it? It's part of God's plan. It's part of his elective purposes. It's consistent with his promises. It doesn't violate his justice. It doesn't violate his holiness, but rather it puts God and his tender mercy on full display as the God of compassionate grace. And secondly, why is many of the nations of Israel rejected the gospel? Because it's part of what God said was going to happen. Nothing catches them off guard. It's part of what he said was going to happen through his prophets by way of revelation. Again, God predicted Israel's unbelief. Again, they would reject him. They would follow other gods. They'd become spiritually adulterous in their lifestyle. That he predicted that, that Israel would reject the Messiah and put him to death. Again, read uh, Isaiah 53. But there's another dynamic that Paul has to address in, in Israel's rejection of the gospel. And that's what he brings to the forefront here at the close of Romans 9. It's the prerequisite of faith. The prerequisite of faith. God's always demanded that men believe. If they were to be the object of God's mercy and Israel and Israel refused to believe the truth. And when men refuse to believe the truth, that puts men outside of any hope. It puts them in the realm of no hope. Outside of any possibility of God dealing with men in mercy and grace. God has always demanded that men believe what God says to be true. And what God has declared. That's the only way of salvation. Abraham, what? Believed God and God counted it as righteousness. 
Paul says the righteous man shall live by faith. So divine sovereignty has been much on display here in this Romans chapter 9 passage. Right? It's been stressed very far, very much. But right alongside the, the, the doctrine of divine sovereignty is you always have the doctrine of human responsibility. The responsibility of, to, of men to exercise belief. So God's demand for men to believe the gospel in no way is inconsistent to his sovereignty. And again, these two, we've talked about this a lot, but these two realities seem to contradict each other. They seem to be mutually exclusive from our human standpoint, but from uh, 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 the Bible standpoint, from God's standpoint, they're both clearly taught. You can't exclude one and emphasize the other. If you do, if you exclude one and emphasize the other, then you become unbalanced and you become unbiblical in your presentation of the truth. Divine election, absolute two. Man's responsibility, absolute two. Two tra- parallel lines that, that, that never intersect. So God's sovereignty elects men into salvation, but that salvation doesn't become effective in time until men believe by faith in the gospel. Because God, by his own determination, will not save a person who does not believe in his own son, in who he is and what he has done for mankind, nor can a person save himself in any act of his own will, no matter how sincere or how heartfelt his effort. Men have to believe. Or you could say it another way, in God's divine way of doing things, no man can be saved apart from sovereign, the sovereign effectual call of God. Then a man must respond to that call in time with belief. So again, there's a tension in the Scripture. I mean, we just simply proclaim the tension, proclaim the truth, believe them by faith. So what we're going to see here is Israel's unbelief in the gospel is their own fault. They themselves bear the responsibility for their own rejection, for their own belief, not God. It's mankind's sin. It's man's love for sin that keeps the sinner away from grace. It's man's love for sin that keeps man away from the great mercy of God. It's mankind in rebellion that causes them to refuse to listen and to believe God. What God says to be true about salvation. And because men refuse to believe, so many of them go down the road of destruction and misery, and they don't care about the gospel. So again, we're still in the context of Israel's rejection, and and their rejection and their unbelief of the gospel, as we're working our way through still the issue of Israel, is also, however, typical of all human rejection and unbelief. So again, what's going to be said here about Israel and their unbelief really could be said about all men, Jews and Gentiles, who are lost. Men are lost because they refuse to believe in God's way of salvation. Men are lost because they want to do something to earn their salvation. Men are lost because they refuse to believe in God's only provision for dealing with their sin and they stumble over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's coming. So we're going to see that here as we work our way through the next portion of this uh, conclusion of Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And it's a fascinating account of mercy. Verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did pursue, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now the key word in the verse is righteousness. It's a key word in the entire book of Romans as we've studied through the book. It occurs over 30 times in the book of Romans and it's four times in these verses, verses 30 and 31. Dikaiosune, righteousness. That, that's what men need. Righteousness is the condition that men need to be acceptable before God. It's the way that a man can attain approved status. Uh, it, it's the only way that a man can have right standing or stand in God's, in God's presence. He needs righteousness. What shall we say then? What are we going to say to this entire discussion uh, about the Gentiles' belief in the gospel and about Israel's current rejection and unbelief of the gospel. Well, it's interesting here because the the Gentiles are believing the gospel, the Jews are not. This is what's interesting. The Gentiles weren't looking for right standing before God, but they found it. Gentiles weren't looking for right standing before God, but they found it. The Jews were actually looking for right standing before God, and they were trying to, here's the word, they were trying to work for it. They were trying to earn it. Therefore, they never arrived, the Jews, they never arrived at what they were looking for. It's a really strange story if you step back just a bit. Those who were not looking for it found it, and those who were trying to achieve it never obtained it. 
the righteousness that men need to stand before a holy God. Again, verse 30 says, The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Pursue, the word means to run after swiftly. It has the idea to catch a thing or a person. Uh, the idea of hunting, uh, 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 seeking something earnestly. The Gentiles who were not seeking for salvation, nevertheless, they found salvation because they became object of God's amazing grace. One commentator says this, it says, the implication for the Jews is they didn't pursue the righteousness which is by faith, but instead they relied on their birthright as Jews or their supposed good works and obedience uh, to God's law, but no person has ever been saved at any time under any dispensation of covenant on any other thing on the basis except of faith exercised in response to God's gracious call. What shall we say then, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now the word attained means they were able to lay hold of it or seize it. They, they took it to themselves. They appropriated it. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even, again, the righteousness which is by faith. And that's the only righteousness that you can get to stand before God. The righteousness that comes only by repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And again, the Bible says anybody who wants can come, right? There's no distinction. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all are justified by grace through God's gift of redemption, found in the person of Jesus Christ, who God put forth as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. There's one God, one God overall. One God is the God of the Gentiles, one God is God over all the Jews, and, and this God saves this way only, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. That's how he saves now, in the context of, uh, of the book of Romans, uh, the gospel has been proclaimed, and many people believe. Many Gentiles believe that. They attain the righteousness simply by believing, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They've repented of their sin. They've come to faith. They've been converted. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why, verse 32? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So again, the, 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 uh, the Gentiles who are not looking for right standing before God found it. They became objects of God's incredible mercy and grace because the gospel is proclaimed and they simply believe the gospel. Israel is spending their entire time working for it and they never arrived or attained the righteousness they needed to stand before God because they refused to pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. Now, the entire world is in that same boat, Jews and Gentiles. Everybody's the same, right? Everybody's in the same lump of clay. Every, everybody's under the law. Everybody's condemned. Everybody's accountable before God. Everybody's without excuse because of their sin and rebellion. Everybody's unable to do anything to save themselves or to earn or work for their salvation. And somehow the Jews missed that. Somehow they missed the fact that they were sinners, unable to work for or earn their salvation. In desperate need of mercy, grace, and what? Whom? A Savior. Desperately need of mercy, grace, and a Savior. And, and again, you, you look at the story and you go, it's an amazing story. And again, those who aren't looking for righteousness or giving it, those who are working for it are never going to obtain it. And you stop and you look just at the issue of salvation in, in its own by the mind of the natural man. Na natural man hates the gospel. Natural man hates the, the doctrine of sovereign, distinguishing, electing grace because it's an assault to his what? To his pride. Because men are self-righteous. Men don't want to be obligated to God in any fashion. Self-righteous people, self-righteous individuals think they can do something or have already, already done something or they are not as bad as somebody else to earn something that allows standing before God something that pleases God. So again, that's all of mankind. All, all men want to do something. Even a small thing. Just a small thing. Just something, right? They, they, they want to do something to say they've earned their salvation. Because men in their pride don't want to say this. They don't want to say that they're debtors to grace. They don't want to say they're debtors to grace. All men want to say they don't need salvation. 
They don't want the salvation that God's providing, nor do they need a Savior. That's why they reject Christ. But that's not the way salvation works. That's not the way God's salvation works. It's always by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And true salvation is the reality that every man who is saved is indeed a debtor to grace. And again, it's only those who by repentance come by faith alone, by grace alone, the person of Christ alone, that are ever going to find the mercy they need to stand in the presence of God as he gifts to them the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says salvation is found in no other name under heaven given among men except the name of Jesus Christ. So God has so ordered the plan of salvation according to 1 Corinthians 29, or 1 Corinthians uh, um, chapter 1, verses 29 and 31, that no man should boast before God. That no man should boast before God, but by his you're doing, you're in Christ Jesus. Just as it is written, let him who boasts and boasts in the Lord. Right? Salvation is all about God. So again, the God's plan of salvation that men reject and hate, it's because it's, it's an affront to man's pride and the gospel goes out freely to humble men in their pride. Because pride really is the root of our sin against God. The Gentiles that did not pursue righteousness attained a righteousness, even though the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness didn't arrive at the law. Uh, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. I mean, they wasted their entire time. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, needs one person. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, the person of Jesus Christ alone. Every man needs Jesus Christ. The gift that God has given to this world because of his great love for fallen mankind. But the Jews missed him. The Jews rejected him. Verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So again, Paul's again pro- quoting from Isaiah. He's declaring the fact that long before Christ physically came to there, some 750 years or so, God already knew that they were going to reject him. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written 750 years before. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. God's word hasn't failed in the context of the book of Romans. God's word hasn't failed because of Israel's unbelief in the gospel. Their unbelief is actually confirmed in God's word because it's exactly what God said was going to happen. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, just as it is written, behold, listen carefully, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and he who believes, next with two words, in him, will not be disappointed. The rock of offense is a person. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. So again, trying to work for your salvation, trying to earn your salvation. The Jews rejected the only way that salvation would come to them or any other man. It's only through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So again, God is setting Christ forward, the sure, tested, costly foundation stone, and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be disturbed. Because all of God's promises regarding mankind and salvation are about him, found in him, true in him. Christ will not fail in his redeeming mission. God will not fail through Christ whom he has sent into the world because he keeps all of his promises. And all who are elect are safe and secure in him through Christ all the way to glory. And you know, as you look at the New Testament, it says, Jesus Christ says, look, I am that stone, right? Uh, Matthew 21, verse 42. He was the stone. He says of himself, he was the stone which the builders rejected who became the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ understood who he was. The, The apostles understood who he was. They affirmed the fact that he's the chief cornerstone, rejected of men. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said, uh, verse 10, uh, the Christ, uh, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, who crucified, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven, under heaven by, given among men by which we must be saved. 
So again, the Jews are trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to work for righteousness that only comes to men by grace alone through faith alone. And in doing so, by trying to work for their salvation, they stumbled and were disobedient to the word. The Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And to the prideful, self-righteous man, that's who Christ is. He's always a stumbling stone. He's always a rock of offense. The great commentator Robert Haldane, uh, who has a great work here in uh, the book of Romans, he says, A free salvation becomes an offense to men on account of their pride. They cannot bear the idea of being indebted uh, for it to sovereign grace, for which implies in themselves they are guilty and ruined by sin. They desire to do something were it ever so little to merit salvation in the least part. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says the word of the cross is what? To those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. So again, in the context of the story, Israel, unbelief, didn't catch God, God, off guard whatsoever, didn't surprise God. Doesn't nullify his plans. In fact, he predicted it was going to happen. And all their unbelief does in the context of the book of Romans and even into our day is just confirm his word. God doesn't have one plan of salvation for the Jews and another plan of salvation for for Gentiles as some falsely report. Salvation is for every man who by grace alone through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone comes for whoever will believe in him will not be disappointed. And again, God hasn't rejected his people, the nation of Israel, whom he loved. He hasn't replaced them with the church. He has a love for the nation of Israel, a love for the church, two distinct entities. He has promises that he's made to the nation of Israel that he's going to fulfill according to his plan. And according to his purpose, he's going to save for himself a remnant that will one day be reunited to her king. And they'll come to embrace Jesus. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn. And they'll see that Jesus is the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. And that's true. It's what God declares is going to happen. That's God's word. So where are you tonight with the truth? Where's Jesus Christ in your life? Is he a rock of offense to you? Is he a stone of stumbling? Or have you repented and come to him and placed your only hope in him and him alone? Because for a lot of people, they're still trying to do something to earn their salvation trying to be nice, trying to be good. And most people don't realize that they can't. You can't work for a righteousness to stand before God. It has to be gifted to you by grace through a substitute, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any kind of idea that you can earn your salvation or be honest or good or kind or whatever to stand before God, that's a lie of the devil. It's a lie of the devil. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I hope you've done that. If not, don't let this day go past. Bow your knee, come to Christ. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for an opportunity to study your great word. What a great time we are having doing this kind of quick flyover of uh, these uh, chapters in Romans. And now we've finished chapter 9, and we're thankful for that. We're just thankful for the wonderful truth that you have left for us in your word that points us to the person of Jesus Christ, where all of our hope and our help is found. We honor you. We thank you for a great day of worship. Thank you for this morning and the wonderful time we had in your word. And thank you for the time we have this evening. And all praise and honor belong to you, our God, and to Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.